PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Are there differences in active treatments on clinical outcomes or is the final common pathway that all of our treatments are encouraging activity? They can pick either intervention to treat their patients based on what their experiences are. There might be other important reasons why you want to choose one over the other. Cost-effectiveness would be the obvious choice in our health service. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Exercise Treatments for Patients with Low Back Pain. The March 2012 issue of PTJ includes a randomized controlled trial comparing motor control exercises and graded activity for patients with chronic nonspecific low back pain. Lead author Dr. Luciana Macedo discusses the interpretation of her study with clinical trials expert Professor Nadine Foster. And now, the moderator for today's discussion, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Stephen George. Welcome to today's PTJ podcast. My name is Steve George. I am an associate professor and also the assistant department chair at the University of Florida, and I'll be acting as the moderator today. We will be discussing a paper from Macedo et al. The paper is Effective Motor Control Exercises versus Graded Activity in Patients with Chronic Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a Randomized Controlled Trial. We've invited Luciana Macedo and Nadine Foster to talk about this paper. I'm going to ask our two participants to introduce themselves, and we'll start with Dr. Macedo. Hi, my name is Luciana Macedo. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alberta at the Department of Physical Therapy. And this study that we are discussing today was actually conducted during my PhD at the George Institute for Global Health and the University of Sydney in Australia. Thank you. And Dr. Foster? So my name is Nadine Foster. I'm a professor of musculoskeletal health in primary care, and that's at Keene University in the UK. Um, I'm also the director of the clinical trials unit here at Keele. My interest is doing randomized control trials, testing physiotherapy interventions. And thanks to both of you for joining us today. I was just going to do a general introduction of the topic. It's fairly well accepted and well known that chronic back pain is a major problem and exercise has been shown to be of some benefit, typically when it's compared to control or minimal intervention conditions. There's less of an obvious advantage when exercises are compared directly head-to-head. And this, of course, makes a need for clinical trials to compare different types of exercises to find what might be most effective for resolving chronic pain. This article from Sato et al. tackles this problem directly. We have here a very well-done clinical trial in patients with chronic low back pain, a good sample size, and two specific treatment approaches a graded activity approach that is based on cognitive behavioral theory, and then a motor control intervention based on, not surprisingly, motor control theory. These patients were followed for 12 months. So in many ways, this really is a trial of what more could you ask for? 
I also just wanted to let folks know Nadine is an internationally recognized expert in low back pain and has been involved with several well-known clinical trials, maybe most recently the START trial that was published in Lancet. So I'd like to ask Luciana to provide a brief summary of the article from the author's perspective. All right. So motor control exercises and great activity are recent and prominent interventions for patients with low back pain. Their popularity are growing within the clinical community. Particularly in Australia, where the study was conducted, there was a push from the Workers' Compensation Board for the use of graded activity or cognitive behavioral approaches for patients with low back pain. However, proponents of motor control exercises, which is an exercise that's commonly used in Australia and around the world, argued that there was a different, there was no evidence to support the use of one intervention over the other. So then we conducted a randomized control trial to compare the two interventions. And we followed patients for two, six, and 12-month follow-up. And we used our primary outcomes as pain, measured on a numerical pain scale, and function, measured on a specific functional scale. We also collected secondary outcomes, such as disability on the Roland Morris questionnaire, quality of life using the SF36 and global perceived effect. The results of the study are actually quite easy to summarize we found that there was no significant difference between groups for any of our primary or secondary outcomes for any of the time points. And most importantly, the facts estimates and confidence intervals were really tiny, demonstrating a strong precision of the facts, and that for at least this patient population, there is no difference in the facts between the treatments. Nadine, a chance to respond and perhaps point out some aspects of the study that you thought were particularly strong? Yes, I mean, it was really great to see this paper published. Clearly, exercise is recommended consistently in all our national and international low back pain guidelines. I realize that we don't really have good research data that shows clear superiority of one form of exercise over another, despite the fact that we have many trials that compare different sorts of exercise for back pain patients. So it's really good to see this paper and to see its contribution to the literature I liked its focus on the two exercise approaches being studied with the rationale being that these two approaches have some good, strong foundations in plausible mechanisms. So all of that was very positive. I think a particular strength of this study is the exercise intervention. I like the idea that these interventions were delivered in one-to-one intervention sessions. Um, Eight weeks of exercise treatment with two booster sessions at four months and ten months in addition to a good regime of home exercises that obviously were physiotherapy prescribed. I wondered whether the way in which these exercise interventions were delivered in the trial, whether that was reflective of Australian practice at the time or whether to some degree these were optimized for the purposes of the trial. Um, I also really like the attempts to capture the adherence because that's really rare in trials of exercise for back pain and other musculoskeletal problems. It's not an easy thing to try to capture, but I like their novel monthly FMS texting to get monthly pain outcomes. That's something our group here at Keele has been considering, and we haven't yet quite managed to do it. But I thought all of that was, was really super. Yeah, and I agree with you completely on all those points. And I like the question about whether this is reflective of the practice in Australia. I would be interested in hearing from her on that. Sure, I think that's a very important point. When we designed the study, we were thinking about an optimal effect. And reading Jill Hayden's review, the conclusion was that trials had to have greater than 20 hours of exercises. 
And that's why we wanted to have enough hours of exercises so we can match that. So it doesn't necessarily reflect practice in Australia. We try to make that by adding the booster session, which is something that often happens in clinical practice, that patients come back after a while just to see if they can revise their home exercise programs or if they got worse or if they had a flare-up, if they can do anything about that. But the length of the program is not necessarily what happens in clinical practice. From a UK perspective, I could say that it's much more than what patients would normally get in the UK. Um, we have recent Chartered Society of Physiotherapy figures that have looked at workload in musculoskeletal services across the country. And on average, in our National Health Service, patients like this are likely to get at most about three or four treatment sessions with a physiotherapist. Right. And for the United States, I would agree that our practice patterns would probably be similar to what you reported in the UK. So I do think that is something for the readership to be aware of. But the flip side of that, though, there's many different reasons for these two treatments to have similar effects in this trial. One of them could have been that there was inadequate dosing, but I don't think that would be a reason that would be strongly considered. Yes, I agree completely, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what we were thinking when we designed the study. We didn't want to have any question whether it was the dosing or the amount of time that the patient spent with the therapist if they were implemented optimally. My thoughts about the lack of difference shown between the two arms of the trial centered mostly around the plausibility of putting two good quality exercise programs up against each other in a trial and then thinking that you might see a moderate or large difference between clinical outcomes in the two groups. I think what I'm increasingly learning in doing trials is that when you compare good quality exercise-based interventions in a head-to-head comparison, it becomes almost impossible to detect a difference in clinical outcomes. I did a quick Google search for something else just last week, looking for exercise versus exercise trials and back pain, with recent examples including things like clinical Pilates, deep water running, general exercise. And then, in general, all the trials that compare exercise with exercise tend to say the same sorts of things, which are along the lines of, well, everyone improved on average, but there was no difference between the treatment arms of the trial. And that's what I'm seeing here in this paper, that here again, we have an exercise versus an exercise trial and concluding no difference. But my gut feeling about this trial even though it has a good sample size, is that it probably was still under power to detect a very small difference between the treatments here because what we were starting with are two very good quality physio-led exercise approaches and it was going to be really tough right from the beginning to show a difference in clinical outcomes. I also wondered whether the team thought about perhaps looking at other measures for superiority like cost or adherence or patient satisfaction. But, I mean, clearly... In terms of clinical outcomes, what this paper tells me is that we have two good quality intervention packages here based on exercise. Patients do reasonably well on either of them and therefore we have reasonable options in our exercise toolkit here of either motor control or graded activity and there's not much to choose between them. So does this mean that two-armed exercise trials are going to be challenging in the future because you will need to have very large sizes that are powered to detect what could be trivial effects? Do we need three-armed designs or do we need to change our outcome measures or both? We can consider all of those options. So we've been looking at equivalence trials rather than superiority trials where we feel that it isn't plausible 
that one intervention or service is going to be superior to the other, but there, there might be other important reasons why you want to choose one over the other. Cost effectiveness would be the obvious choice in our health service. So things might be clinically equivalent, but actually one is much cheaper to deliver or one is much more acceptable to patients and clinicians or so on. And I suspect that in physical therapy trials, we're going to have to rise to the challenge of thinking about those other sorts of trial designs. Equivalence trials do require larger samples, though, so that challenge will still be there. I'm not sure that we always have to put in a minimal intervention, usual care, usual general practice, whatever. I'm not sure about we would need to do that. But I think we're getting clearer now about where we should be headed in the future and what trials we shouldn't do more of. And I think we've got to be really careful about doing further head-to-head comparisons of active interventions unless we've really thought through the plausible effects that we might see. Thank you for your comments on that. So I'd like to hear from Luciana about how this informs clinical practice. What are the primary implications for clinical practice? So with the results that we have so far from this trial, we didn't find any difference between the treatment groups. So in clinical practice, I would recommend that the therapists identify what are the treatments they're most used to dealing with, and they can pick either intervention to treat their patients based on what their experiences are. Nadine, do you have any reaction or response? I do. I mean, we know that back pain research consistently shows that exercise is a helpful treatment for persistent or chronic low back pain, and it doesn't seem to matter which exercise we use when we apply it to heterogeneous groups of back pain patients. So I think this trial adds to that literature base. And for me, the clinical implications include Luciana's point about therapists following the approach in which they feel most confident. But I suppose I would add to that and think also about extending the clinical implications to the patients and thinking about, well, perhaps we ought to be focusing on exercise that patients are likely to do in the longer term and are likely to be able to do in terms of secondary prevention of future episodes of back pain because we know it's such a recurrent problem. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point. You know, looking at treatment preference from the patient's perspective is certainly something that has potential and conditions that don't have definitive therapies from randomized trial and certainly low back pain falls in that category. I think that certainly is something to consider. This point has come up a couple times, and I think we have enough time to briefly hit on it before we go into the general summary, and that is, is there a difference between chronicity and recurrence? And I'm wondering if Luciana has any comments on recurrence and chronicity, and can we tease that out, or is that something else we need to think about in designing these exercise studies for the future? So in this study, we actually try to evaluate recurrence whether the patients had recovered or if they had a recurrence, but these measures are actually really hard to measure in this patient population due to the fact that they're often fluctuating and it's really hard to look at that, whether we're looking at chronicity or recovery or fluctuation. We have actually conducted a study with the data of this study to look whether we can pull out those patients that are fluctuating and pull out those patients that are maintaining their pain over time, but I don't think we're there yet. I think maybe technologies like SMS might help us look at those factors. Thanks for the honest reply, too, because I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I think it's important for people to understand the difficulty of measuring things like recurrence and how difficult it can be in this particular patient population to distinguish between chronicity and recurrence. I just didn't want that to get swept under the carpet because I think clinically people think intuitively, of course, I know the difference between a chronic and a recurrent condition. And 
maybe you do for a particular patient or for that episode of when you see the patient, but when you're trying to do it systematically across a trial like this and have an operational definition, it is quite challenging. Nadine, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I agree. I think in this trial, it would have been supremely challenging to be able to demonstrate an impact on recovery defined as, you know, let's say a last pain-free month. That's a helpful model for defining a clear stop and a new episode starting, but it is very challenging. And I think in this particular trial, given the characteristics of the participants, it was always going to be extremely difficult to demonstrate effective outcomes in terms of recovery rather than disability and pain. So yes, it's challenging and in this population particularly challenging. All right. So I think we're about ready to move on. Nadine or Luciana, do either of you have anything you want to throw out there for general discussion? I mean, we've covered all of the issues that I've had already thought through, bar one, which is contamination. When I looked at table one in the paper, I could see that there were eight shared principles in these two exercise interventions. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up, Luciana. I have my own thoughts, but I'd like you to reply first because my own thoughts are outside of this study. I think looking at table one of the study, you can actually see that the two interventions do overlap in some principles. And so the therapists that were treating in the study, they had a little difficulty in the beginning to grasp the differences between the two interventions. And I think that's a point we made really clear for them. We did audits with the physiotherapist to make sure that they were using the specific characteristics of each one of the treatments. However, we did not look specifically how much contamination there was. And there could be a difference, but we tried to avoid contamination. Yeah, and I agree that in this study, that's done about as well as you can do it, or at least as well as has been done in the literature before for exercise studies. And when I look at table one, I think of my own experiences where I have tried to compare not as distinct treatments and trials, but kind of shades of graded activity compared to a graded exposure protocol, for example. So shades of cognitive behavioral interventions. But when you do set up a table like in a randomized trial, you realize that there's a lot of similarities and it might be difficult to see differences in treatment effects. And I think the bigger question with that then is, are there differences in active treatments on clinical outcomes or is the final common pathway that all of our treatments are encouraging activity and is that what we're going to see the favorable effect from? And I think that's an important consideration as we're moving forward because it may be very difficult to have active approaches without overlap. I kind of was thinking, if these two are theoretically distinct and there's that much overlap, what were we thinking by trying to compare graded exposure and graded activity? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I agree. and, And so maybe we shouldn't be surprised with some of these trial effects. What you've just said has made me think we need to be careful that trials that are comparing two active interventions like this one aren't misinterpreted to mean because it's a null trial or it doesn't show any difference that these interventions aren't helpful. Absolutely, what this trial tells us is that exercise activity interventions are helpful for patients. Right. And we just need to be careful that these sorts of trials aren't misinterpreted by the wider public or the media or the press. It isn't that exercise isn't effective at all. It's just that it's really challenging to show differences when you put two good quality packages like this head-to-head. I agree, and I think the methodologist's response to that is going to be, well, insert a third arm in here of a minimal intervention, but this group was very careful to pick interventions that had already shown superiority. So 
that becomes a yeah. burden on the trial because now you have to increase the sample size. It's a burden on patients who are getting a treatment that we know is not as effective as these two. So I think at this point, we can wrap up what's sticking in your mind from the discussion or, or what you took from this. So I think we'll let Luciana be the first one to summarize. Okay, so I think this was a well-designed randomized control trial that compared to high-quality interventions, and we identified that there was no difference between the two interventions. That doesn't mean that the interventions don't work. They actually have shown in previous studies that they are better than minimal intervention or other types of interventions. There's some superiority there, but we can't identify the difference between these two interventions. And the question remains whether we are able or not to identify patients that will respond to each one of these interventions or whether we should just move forward and just think that patients will benefit from any activity or a maintaining active and move forward to identifying that. Or, on the other hand, look at other studies that will look at cost-effectiveness and satisfaction and things that will help not only patients and clinicians, but healthcare systems to identify which is the best type of exercise therapy to provide to this type of patients. Yes, I think this trial is a very useful addition to the literature on exercise for back pain. I think it highlights to us the challenges of putting two good quality exercise interventions head-to-head in a trial and the challenge then to try and show or detect a difference in clinical outcomes between those two interventions. For me, the implications of that are that as researchers, we need to be more realistic about the likely differences and effects between good quality interventions. That therefore means we're likely to need to power future randomized trials to be able to detect smaller differences or perhaps even consider equivalence trials where we're powering the study to demonstrate equivalence. Those trials are going to be more challenging to do in terms of sample size and complexity, but I think we have to rise to those challenges. And for me, the other clear implication that Luciana has already alluded to is the exciting potential for research that addresses the question, which exercise for whom? And I think that's where we need to head. Thank you. I would like to thank both Nate Dean and Luciana for taking the time to discuss this article. So thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.